Hebrews Bible Study Number 3, Christ Over Angels. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews, the first chapter, beginning in the fifth verse. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? From Psalm 2, 7. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. From 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, and Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, from the Septuagint. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. Psalm 104, verse 4. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110, verse 1, referenced by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Context, Messaging, and Citations First and foremost, in this passage the author is demonstrating that Jesus is superior to angels. But why would he take time to prove this? During the first century AD, Jewish groups had a serious problem in overemphasizing angels. Since the Book of Enoch was written in the 2nd century BC, with the exception of the verses in 2 Peter and Jude which refer to the original words of Enoch, there was an Enochian fever which paid great attention to the four supposed cardinal angels, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, and Uriel. Pseudepigrapha was rampant, from 1 Enoch to the Book of Jubilees and countless others, almost all of which went into great detail on angels, watchers, guardian spirits, Nephilim, and so forth. There was a belief among some groups, like the Qumran community, that these books actually took precedence over everything Moses wrote and could even be used to abrogate what the law commanded. Ascetic practices went hand in hand with attempts to foster contact with these angels, St. Paul condemns it in Colossians 2, verses 18 and 19, saying, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Like St. Paul does in Colossians, Hebrews argues that Christ is the head, superior to all, making angels relatively superfluous, their actual importance notwithstanding. In comparison with Jesus, they are minor figures indeed. Certainly, the author does not necessarily have to see the contemporary Jewish preoccupation with angels as the reason he writes this. But it is from there that he will launch arguments for the supremacy of Jesus over everyone else as well. Angels, being spiritual beings in communion with God directly, are naturally the first group which he needs to put in their proper place. They appear to be at the top of a hierarchy below God only, and the author wishes to unseat them and put them under Christ. How is Jesus superior to the angels? The author establishes Christ's higher status over the angels in the following ways. 1. The Father has proclaimed Jesus to be his Son and the Messiah. 2. The angels are to worship the Son. And 3. Angels are merely servants in the royal court of heaven. Jesus Christ, being God, is King. For each of these, Scripture is presented as evidence. In fact, Scripture is the only evidence for the author's arguments here. On this digression, this is part of the importance of the book of Hebrews. The book of Romans is a soteriological text. First and second Corinthians are practical texts. Hebrews, on the other hand, is a lecture on Christology that utilizes the systematic theological method entirely. Unlike the book of James or the book of Jude, which are more or less didactic in nature, Hebrews lays out a Christological position and then defends it almost entirely by scripture alone. Practices like this are part of the foundation of Lutheran theological methodology. But again, I digress. How has the Father proclaimed Jesus to be Son and Messiah? First, he quotes Psalm 2 verse 7, which states, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. The second psalm is already about the Messiah as ruling over the nations. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God rebuffs the plans of rebellious rulers by declaring the Anointed One to be his Son in this psalm. Let us not be swayed by the word today in verse 5, as though Jesus has not always been the Son of God. We already rebuffed adoptionism last week, but this verse does not go against eternal generation. God exists in an eternal present, outside of time, and it is always today for him. For the Father to address the Son, who is also divine, is to address him in that eternal present. The writer of Hebrews will discuss some of the time aspect later on in the book, so we will wait for that discussion until he brings it up. But he also brings 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 into his argument at least at first blush. The exact words stated are, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is not a statement on the sonship of Christ, whether of eternal generation or 
functional per the social trinity view. If he were, then he would be better off quoting more from Psalm 2 or bringing up the Son verses from Daniel. Instead, by quoting this passage, the author is identifying Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of a promise God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Quote, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Having declared Jesus to be the Son in Psalm 2, God the Father adds to that by telling King David that the dynasty will be everlasting. The prophecy partially applies to David's son, King Solomon, who indeed built a house for God, did sin, and was reproved by the rod of men. But the rest of the promise, which laid unfulfilled by Solomon, regards one who is God's son, who establishes an everlasting kingdom, and sits on David's throne forever. These are fulfilled only by Jesus. The author then is saying that Jesus is over all angels because God has declared him to be king and Messiah as the son of David, rather than any of the angels. Now in what way are angels told to worship Jesus? The author quotes the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 32 verse 43, saying, Let all God's angels worship him. Let us look at the passage in question, Deuteronomy 32, verses 39 through 43. Quote, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, with the blood of the slain and the captives, from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So God is speaking, yet telling the angels, woefully mistranslated gods in the ESV, more on that later, to worship God. God is telling the angels to worship God. Instead of saying, worship me, he says, worship God. To the author of Hebrews, who has already established Christ's divinity, this is a clear statement of hierarchy, as the Father is making this command. Angels are commanded to worship Jesus, making him clearly above them. Now there is a tricky matter of translation which must be addressed. The argument is still valid from other translations, but the Septuagint is more direct. 
This is due to those translations which emphasize the Masoretic text which lacks the phrase. So the King James unfortunately reads thus, and the NKJV, NASB, and so forth are in agreement. Quote, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. While the ESV, together with the NRSV and Septuagint, will read similarly, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The ESV says gods and not angels like the Septuagint, likely due to the use of the word Elohim, which is often translated mighty ones when not referring to God himself. This is unfortunate as not only has God denied the existence of other gods in verse 39, making it impossible for such non-existent deities to worship him, but the author of Hebrews, Holy Scripture, tells us that the beings referred to are angels, not gods. As for us, we ought to go off the declarations of New Testament authors regarding translations rather than some other academic method. If we wish that the translators of the KJV and the ESV had listened to the author of Hebrews. But again, and again and again, I digress. How are angels servants? What else is the author stating? The author actually defines angels in verses 7 and 14, and this is likely the only definition of angels given in Scripture. They are said to be ministers, or more properly, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. He does not define them in any metaphysical fashion, leaving their exact nature something of a mystery. More important to him is the function of the angels as spiritual beings sent to help humanity. This is reflected in Psalm 34, verse 7, which states, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them, as well as St. Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, that the saints will judge the angels. A legitimate question to ask is, if angels serve humanity, and humanity is below Christ, what does that mean regarding their place in the hierarchy? Then in comparison, he cites Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7, and Psalm 102 verses 25 through 27 as applying to Jesus. It would be redundant for us to go in detail over every reference here, so let us merely show the argument. Verse 8 begins with, But of the Son he says. And verse 5 establishes that God is the one speaking. So how does God address Jesus? As God. The Father calls Jesus Christ God and Lord, appropriating to him the same things appropriated to the Father. One would imagine the author writing this as the final say, a critical blow against those who held too high an esteem of angels or denied the divinity of Jesus. There are other things which the writer will speak of regarding Jesus as we continue through Hebrews. Let us not believe that he speaks incessantly about Jesus' divinity as his only argument for the congregation to stay faithful. There is plenty more. However, if the author did do this, 
it would still be entirely legitimate. Jesus Christ is God, King, and Messiah, establishing both the reason to stay with him and also to accept no substitute nor other path. Next week, we will get into the first exhortation that comes from this description of his mighty high place. Amen and amen.